This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Raslan, today we have, he is the Bob Dylan of Bungie, a singer-songwriter, which will become relevant, and he's an educator. I wish he'd been my teacher. He is Asmil Yunor. Hi, hi, guys. <laughs> uh, actually, educator, too, too bland. Asmil, specifically? Uh... I don't know, academic? Uh, no, come on. What department? What? what oh, was? okay. Okay. Um, well, that's a tough one too, actually. I'm kind of interdisciplinary. Uh, film and media lecturer. Okay. All yeah. right. <laughs> and uh, we have the return of, he is a producer here at BFM. He is Mikey Gong. Hey, Ken. Happy New Year. And uh, good to see you again. Uh, and good to see you, Mikey. It's always good to see you. And so our three topics this week are topic number one is singer-songwriters, topic number two is dark triad, and finally topic number three is uh, working solo versus working collaboratively versus working in a collective or band. So, Asmil, singer-songwriter, how many roads must a man go down? <laughs> a, lot, a lot of roads to the gig. <laughs> you must know also the roads after the gig that doesn't have a roadblock. <laughs> So they can make it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, singer songwriter, man. Um, you know, I growing up I didn't know what singer songwriter was. I know who Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, even like in Malaysia at that time was uh um, you know, all the, the kind of musicians and Nasi. So but um that term is kind of a it's really common now. You know, it's a buzzword after I think when we had famous singer-songwriter, indie singer-songwriters becoming big, like people like Yuna and Ziavi, right? So, and there's people who I knew when they were starting up. But I find it very peculiar, singer-songwriters in Malaysia, because being one is that I always joke that, you know, singer-songwriters are usually the, the, the singer and, you know, the guy who writes a song, guy or girl who writes a song in the band, who's just a frustrated band member, can't find a band member who are on the same page and they become solo. So that's how I ended up. Even though I'm not frustrated now and as a band member, I've got a lot of bands. But uh, Malaysia is very peculiar because in Malaysia, when you think of singers, people associate it, especially the public, uh, with mainstream ideas what singers are, right? That you're entertainers, um, you're divas, and uh, you know you sing what the crowd wants. Whereas I think singer-songwriters really follow their own, follow their, their own beat, right? Uh, dance to their own beats, and you know they they sing to different things. And generally, you don't make a lot of, you don't really earn a living. Or at least enough as a singer songwriter compared to being a singer. But what what just mm. to clarify then, the difference is the singer doesn't write the songs. You mean if you're just a singer? Yeah, most of the time. I mean So you, so a singer songwriter sings and writes the songs. Yeah. So so I suppose the danger there's no filter there, right? Sometimes the songs could suck, but you're gonna sing it anyway. You know? Sorry, I have a question here. Why would you make more money? So there's an boring ex-banker coming in here. Um, and <laughs> if you write the song, you've got copyright on that song, right? And uh, you sing it as well, so you get revenues from that. And then later on, if you're sick of singing that song, you can sell the rights away, like Bruce Springsteen did recently, and yeah. make a, you know, a bomb. Uh, so why wouldn't it be better to be a singer-songwriter as you know? Because uh, we're not Bruce Springsteen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh... No, it's tricky because, I mean, people, you write songs just like any any kind of, uh, I, I would call being a singer-songwriter more vocation than a career. Because, you know, you write songs that you want to sing and that not necessarily fit markets, right? 
I think that's a big thing that I think um, is a big difference. Yes, copyright is one thing, but you know, it's a misunderstood thing, I suppose, because you know, yeah, you have intellectual property. You, you need to sign up with a publishing company, mm. and you know, I only did mm. that a couple of years ago, by the way. I I never earned from publishing because um, I played the underground scene, right? So I would mm. I would take whatever tips, and you know, I, I would make CDs and cassettes and sell those. That was my earnings, or the gigs would pay itself. But but can I clarify again, mm. Bruce Springsteen? is a singer-songwriter. He yeah. has with yeah. him the E Street Band, so it's got a big sound. It's not just yeah. him and a guitar, but yeah. he is a singer-songwriter. Yeah. First and foremost, he's a singer-songwriter. And, you know, I guess the template is always Bob Dylan, because all these guys, when they came up, they would call them, oh, the next Bob Dylan. Springsteen was that. Tom Waits was that. You know, all this, in the 70s especially, right? The big singer-songwriter boom happened in the 70s in, in, in States and Europe. But I mean, when the Beatles were, were happening, mm. there were four of them. And yeah. there were several songwriters, but yeah. Paul McCartney was not a singer-songwriter in that context. Uh, not strictly in that sense, but that the Beatles were four singer-songwriters. So that's why they, they I don't think they, 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 that's why it didn't last because you have four different, you're very hard-headed. Yeah, very, very will. I think the thing about singer-songwriters, you're very strong will and you can, you know, this is your song. And that, that's, that's interesting because um, that was, I wasn't aware of that. I'm not formally trained in music. You know, and a lot of singer writers aren't formally trained, and it's. I don't think I looked at certain music programs, even like um, the one I have my university. There's no, there's no subject called singer songwriters. There's composing, and there's instruments, but there's nobody. It's, it's either you have it or not. I suppose that's what singer songwriters are. Because when you're when you're composing and you got that nice chord going, yeah, it's only you to decide which chord to go to next. Yeah. So nobody can step in and say, hey, why don't you go to an E-flat major minor? No, yeah. I, I think that's more than that, uh, Cam. You've got to put words to those chords as well. And sure. so some people will be great musicians, but terrible lyricists. I mean, this yeah. is why uh, music, musical composers work in pairs. You know? Lyricists, yeah. Exactly, Mike. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in a commercial sense, there's always that. Because I think, um, you know, so I think what I'm trying to delineate here is between, you know, being a commercial artist and being a singer-songwriter. So, so it's true, you know. No, 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 yeah. you, no, no just to clarify again, you're not saying that because Bob Dylan is hugely successful. Uh, Bruce Springsteen sold his music for 500 million or something. So you, know, you can be a success, but what you're saying is <laughs> charting a path where you sing about subjects and perhaps play music in such a style that it is not deliberately trying to be music candy to attract people. Yeah, I mean, D Dylan's story is very, very interesting and people always forget. People always think it's just about him and blowing in the wind, but he was very entrepreneurial. He knew which doors to knock, who to, who to you know, if you read his, his backstory, he wasn't necessarily probably, you know, you know he, he'll burn bridges to, to make his career, right? So, so I think, you know, he took the template that was Woody Guthrie and, and you know, the, the, the folk blues guys and he came out from that, you know, like Hank Williams and stuff, but they had a template early on and he was the first kind of like really big singer, right? Because he was spotted by John Hammond of Columbia Records. And, you know, he, that was the age where the A&R person was very important. They could see it. So he owed a lot to this, this other things outside of the music. Of course, he was a great, great, um, you know, storyteller. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. I would say that. Essentially, singer writers are storytellers. We're not singers. Not necessarily entertainers, yeah. So, ask Mel, uh, for record companies, do they prefer singer-songwriters or just singers? I think if it's in, like, I think, 
like now, I mean, it's very popular as singer-songwriters. They will go for that, but I suppose they're looking for a whole package. Um, I think in businesses would have to have that, right? Um, so I think you got to be realistic if you're an indie singer-songwriter. So like, what's your X factor? What makes you different? Are you, are you telling uh, something interesting? Um, but of course, it's a dime a dozen now, um, singer-songwriters. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, my template is all those older guys, which I looked up to. Yeah, but let's say, I mean, if you wrote um, a song which, uh, you know, some reason th- that A&R guy passing through sort of, oh my God, that's great. And then and they say, okay, we're going to send you to Sweden. You're going to play with Max Martin. We're going to auto-tune your voice and it's going to be a huge hit. Uh, would you do it, Asmil? I, I don't know. I don't, we'll see if I, if I, if I'm in depth, I would, yeah. Um, <laughs> they'll, 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 have to show them, they'll have to show them the money first, Kat. yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing about signing, people forget about being on a label is that you're essentially signing in as an employee. Yeah. It's, it's not, you know, it's romanticized signing a label, but you're an employee. They give it advance and then you gotta, you gotta make up that you owe the company that, right? So, so that's the thing. So, so thinking about Bob Dylan, I mean, Asmil, I mean, Bob Dylan in today's day and age, they would definitely auto-tune him three times over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he was brought up his time. Yeah. yeah. And, and then he'll say, no, you're not singing your songs, mate. You're <laughs> just going to give it to someone yeah. else. Some preppy true. teenager to sing Blowing in the Wind, you know? It's true, mm. it's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's why guys yeah. like uh, John Hammond, the Yanaga, guy, was very important. And that, that's missing now. They kill that, that sort of uh, that job scope now. It doesn't exist. Because they were the ones who would insist, I, I can see this, you know? Well, before we move on, uh, Asmi, I just want to ask you, ask you one last question. So there's you, singer-songwriter. Is there anyone else out there that, that is performing now, a really contemporary artist that you rate, that you think is doing something, singer-songwriter-wise? Uh, I mean, there's Brian Gomez. We, we see ourselves as contemporaries. We're about the same age. And we joked when, you know, when, when the government changed and Brian said, uh, we're out of the job now, bro, because our songs are very topical, right? About what's happening in the news. <laughs> I said, I just told him back, don't worry, man. All governments will mess up somehow. You know, there's always a market. And, you know, I was right. So, so yeah, so I mean, he's the only contemporary, I would say, that, that's on the same page, at least topically, and because we're of the same generation, I suppose. Mm. So the times, they are changing again. Always, uh, always. <laughs> and uh, we'll move on, though, to, to something which might be related, actually. I'm not entirely sure. Mikey, Dark Triad. Yeah, this has been on my mind for the last uh, few months, Cam, uh, since I started reading about it. Uh, if For those of you who don't know, the Dark Triad is a psychological term that, that talks about three, you might call it dangerous or toxic traits in people. Uh, they can function individually or they can, and, or they can actually function together uh, scarily. What, what is the Dark Triad? Well, it's narcissism psychopathy and Machiavellianism. And so this, the question just came to my, my mind. Why don't they teach these, um, these things at school uh, or higher education and institutions of higher education? This would have been really useful to know given the fact that you tend to meet these uh, you know, people who exhibit some of, at least some of these traits in your life, either on a personal level or on a professional level. Um, so what do you think, Asmil? Do you think we should teach this in school? Got to ask Asmil. Uh, do, do you teach <laughs> psychopathy? <laughs> do you encourage psychopathy in your students? I'll, I'll, I'll insert it in my banter in between the theories I teach, definitely, yeah. yeah I don't know about it. The dangerous thing about teaching it is that, uh, is that it can actually lead someone to try to develop these traits because the fact is that 
in his book, Office Politics, uh, the psychologist Oliver James actually says that having elements of the dark triad in your personality can give you a nefarious advantage in the workplace. So rather than being something you're, and you might go, oh no, this is bad. It's like, oh, this is good. <laughs> I'm going to go, I, I'm going to become a CEO one day. <laughs> well, let, me, let me turn it back to you, Mikey. I mean, you, you said ex-banker yourself. You must have worked uh, with many different types of people in your time. Yes. I'm not going to ask if you're a psychopath, but <laughs> you must have worked with people who, who, who exhibit these traits. Have they gone on to flourish or do they come to bad ends? The truth is, most of them actually flourish. They go very far, and which is why this topic of, is of great interest to me. Maybe one day I'm going to discuss what happens to the good guys. You know? they, they come last. Yeah, by what you're true. saying. It's true. It's, <laughs> do, do, you know, do only the good die young, as Billy Joel said, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, you know, we'll find out in the next installment when I talk more about this. Yeah. But it's true. I, I mean, I think what, what you've hit the nerve here is like something that, that's, you know, because, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, formal education, you know, ethics and morals come in picture, right? And, you know, you discuss these things and mm. the scope. But if you look at history, even not just the contemporary world, right? the ones who really kind of break through, you got to have these traits because, well, really, you got to have a certain form of, uh, what, what's the word again? Uh, psychopathy, right? Or oh. selfishness, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. That To, to be driven is, uh, you know, to have that confidence and charisma, you know, you know, I think you, that was makes you stand out. You don't necessarily stand out because you have, you're, you're benevolent and you're caring sometimes. So, Asmi, we're talking a lot, a lot about uh, music on tonight's show and what struck me was a lot of band singers and singer-songwriters have a high degree of narcissism you have to be you have to be yeah 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 it's true it's even worse now with social media right if you're singers or anything you're like hi guys you know like so you have for lunch and you know it's true it's not a comfortable place to be in but almost you have to have that quality somehow at least pretend you have that yeah but you know i i got asked just the other day to talk about david bowie for um BFM's night shift uh, because it would have been his 75th birthday and one of the things about Bowie is that he came across I mean people always speak of him as being a very nice guy he he managed to project that but he also decided early on to do something very psychologically crazy which was to be a solo star Mm. and to have collaborators around him we'll probably talk about this more that he would kind of use but he'd have to manage their expectations and get what he wants out of them and come out smelling of roses. Mm. Uh, That's Machiavellism, isn't it? Yeah. Charming, though, I guess. I mean, from what I understand. So it can be charming. I mean, people walked away going, I had a really great time. I learned something. Mm. I made some money. Yeah. Um, I hold nothing against it. Mm. Yeah. But so as long as, you know, the Machiavellism or whatever, the psychopathy is is working to a, a good end, to a decent product. I mean... I'm not talking about Trump, where it's just about trying to make himself not go bankrupt. I mean, like actually creating good product. It can be done, though, can't it, Mike? Yes, I think I think it can. There can be some positive synergies out of it, but in my experience, it's rare. And I think I'm actually quite struck with what Arsenal said. He said that you're not in a comfortable place when you you're in proximity to the to someone who exhibits this this trait. And I think that's the key thing. Nine or ten times. It's not a nice feeling, and it's not just not a comfortable environment to be in. On rare occasions, as you said, Cam, you can get this creative, this uh, this, this sense of uh, dangerous creative force going 
coalescing and you have this something great coming out of it. But and but mo- most times you have a kind of a what I would term and call a PTS, a lingering PTSD for some of the ones who are not on board. Would you agree with me, Asma? <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can leave you traumatized, and you know, I think in pro- especially like film and music, right? Well, the film degree program I teach. Um, you when you see students progress into like making a film, you start to see the personality traits coming out. It's very important mm. to suss that out early on. I think that's what's mm. very different with a film degree and let's say somebody studying music, where you're kind of more isolated. You you specialize instruments and you you pass. Whereas mm. teamwork is, I think, you know, this yeah comes in the picture. We're talking about teamwork nowadays, right? And mm. you need that Machiavellian character to kind of lead the team, you know, into battle. <laughs> but but I wonder if we're talking about a male thing. Not necessarily. Oh. Not necessarily. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's, it's gender necessarily. A lot of women also can have the same traits, and I think you know it's really personality that I think goes beyond gender. Of course, history is is primarily male. Because yeah. Because I'm thinking. I'm thinking of uh, the. the the TV director and filmmaker Joss Whedon, who's mm. in the news oh, yeah. recently, yes. who uh, created Buffy the Vampire Slayer and uh, Firefly, Firefly, a whole bunch of things. The, the lot of, he had a great following in the the viewership world, but it turns out that he's um yeah <laughs> he's a really bad man. <laughs> yeah, but but he created a product that people away from him liked, but he may have hurt people along the way i don't, I don't know is that... well I, I mean that's a that, that's a dime a dozen in the film industry isn't it i mean uh what's the recent controversy about james cameron and the abyss True. great movie great atmospherics but uh you know yeah <laughs> yeah but no, james cameron never hid the fact that he's an a-hole <laughs> oh really <laughs> no absolutely no he he, he relished it <laughs> Okay, that okay. That, I think that's psychopathic. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. by the way, Machiavellian, we we take that to be a pejorative. It, it it was really not. I mean, he when he wrote it, he was mm. writing it as like this is a guy. This is a how to yes. self help book. Exactly. You know, how to survive as a leader in Renaissance Italy. You know, people really needed the help because mm. <laughs> yeah, they'd yeah. die. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And it, was, and it was meant to be classy. It's called the Prince. Not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, ultimately, I mean, I know. Are any of us going to hold up our hands and say, "Well, dark triad"? Got Mikey. You raised it. Are you? Are you? You can't see me on on radio, so I'm going to so I'm going to raise my hand or not, and you can't hold me either. Way. I suspect you're not. Uh, <laughs> I suspect you're not. But we'll get back. We'll we'll check up again. Um, well, we'll must move on though, because in a moment, I think we're going to be we're definitely going to be touching on uh, Asmil's topic again, singer songwriter. But I think we're definitely also going to be touching on the Dark Triad when we ask a question about working solo, collaborating, or being in a collective. Here on a bit of culture, BFM eighty nine point nine. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, uh, Asmil Yuno, and Mikey Gong. And now, topic number three, working solo versus working collaboratively versus working in a band stroke collective. Now, this is inspired by the fact that I've watched um, the wonderful Peter Jackson documentary on the Beatles, Get Back, nine hours. I've watched it three times. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I'm going to watch it again. It, no, it's so fascinating because you have an opportunity to look at these four really talented people who mm. created this wonderful music and you can see them creating the work at that moment. Now, we've been talking through the prism of uh, music, but I think that this is true for every endeavor, uh, every walk of life, because Asmil was talking about the singer-songwriter, the, the solo artist, perhaps, who can 
work on their own work undisturbed, create without interruption, disturbance, but also without input, creative input. And so the, the, there's a plus and there is a minus, but it, it can suit a certain psychopathology <laughs> to, to, to have <laughs> nice. that. Nice. No, to have that, that aloneness. But then you can work as a collaborator where you might be the boss in the situation, as, say, David Bowie was when he was working, and he would get a bunch of very talented people, and he would have to use his words and personality and his acting, really, to be able to coax out of these people what he wanted. Not necessarily what they wanted. <laughs> they might be great jazz players, but he'd be saying, no, I don't want jazz, I want rock. I want you to give a jazzy rock. So it's how to manage all those uh, egos then. And then, then then there's what I watched with the Beatles thing, where it's a, it's a, a band, it's a collective, four equal votes. But inside that, you actually did see that there was one leader, and that was John Lennon. And the, it, there's the wonderful conversations when Paul McCartney is saying, look, you're the leader, but you've stepped back, and I've had to be the leader, and it's not working. And then when you see John Lennon assert himself in simple ways like telling people to shut up when they're doing a take or let's hear that take again everything suddenly goes smoothly it's like oh yeah the boss is back <laughs> we are a collective and we make democratic decisions but it's a guided one now i'm wondering the three of us where do we sit most happily i mean i'm gonna guess asmil singer songwriter you like to work alone yeah i'm a, I'm, I'm a loner but I enjoy being bands because I meet a lot of friends through playing music. But I also believe that bands can never be a democracy. Even though a lot of the bands I love, like the Beatles, seem like it. R.E.M., you know, they, they all get equal credit. But being in bands myself, I realized that, yeah, somebody's got to step up. Uh, I have one of my experimental bands where when we play together, I really want to step back, you know, because I don't want, yeah, I want this to be collective. But I find my, most of the time, one of us got to step up. It's always me because I have the most kind of like experience, I suppose. But for me, the collaboration isn't just within the band unit, but it's also mm. with like who else you collaborate to make the album, the engineers, the producers. Um, so for me, as a solo performer, I collaborate with friends who have the know-how. They can co-produce the engineers. But at the same time also, if I play as my solo self with a band name attached, I think it's quite clear who's the boss. And I think that mm. makes it easier. There's no tension. They know that, oh, I, yeah, there's my show. But when you have a band name and, you know, none of the individual's names are there, there's assumption that, no, this is all for one, one for all. So the ideal, for me, the, the idealistic side of me is that, yeah, band should always be, you know, equal parts. But there's also a reality I realize about personalities and people is that bands can't be democracies, you know. Hmm. It's tough, it's tough, yeah. Hmm. Mikey, are you, a, are you a, a collaborator, soloist, band member? I'm a bit of both, actually. I, I see that's the tension between chaos and order. Uh, so, for example, in, in a band, my impression is that you've got all this creative energy that needs to be harnessed. You just go into the ether if you don't get some order there. So I think I understand what Asmul is saying. Someone has to step up and order the tribe around. This is all very tribal, right? It is, okay. it is. And you organize it that way. Someone knows how to make the fire. Someone knows how to hunt the animal. And someone knows how to... I don't know, find the spices, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or speak to the sound en engineer. So um, it's, it's always interesting that one person will move up to the front. That person's name will usually not 
I mean, even if it's not on the band, will be associated with leadership and the creative driving force behind that band. But it, but it's kind of, it's always fluid though. The uh, the dynamics are always fluid. So you're always on shifting ground. Say let's say with the Beatles in 1965. The best songwriters are Paul McCartney and John Lennon. They create all the content. By 1970, George Harrison is coming along and he's writing better songs. So you might be saying, okay, we just want to create good product. We believe in good product. Put out music that's just going to wow people. But then also the, the egos will be like, yeah, but this young guy who was always the junior partner is now the star. And so... I mean, Asma, you're saying you hate bands, but because it's 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 fraught with danger. No, I don't hate bands. I love bands, uh, but but I think what well, that's part of the fun. That's why I enjoy it. You know, because if you look at the lifespan of a band and a creative book they release, part of the pleasure is looking. At, okay, this album sounds. What's going on here? And you start reading the interviews, the literature, the personnel changes, and oh, now I know why this this is like this and that. And that's I think to me part of the pleasure of being a music fan isn't just the music, right? It's also understanding. Why why did the album shift to this? You know, as mm. they grew, as they you know, maybe the fifth album sounded different from the first. Uh, but that's I think, um, and the interesting thing is I think you mentioned that about the commercial versus the the creative chaos. That's why I think um, bands that you know had a record deal had to deal with the commercial and also the band chaos, and you survive those two things, and you got this body of work that comes out. And I think the distillation of that makes that's why the classic albums. Classic albums because there was just so much things they would need to kind of juggle to get that work out. It's not easy. Uh, one way of working around it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is to have session musicians. Like there's some, like my favorite band, Steve with Mac. So the amount of creative tension and egos and you know, they're famous for splitting up and rejoining. So what ha- what happened was that in the '90s, I think they just got a bunch of session musicians in. That didn't work out too well for them. <laughs> Yeah, if I remember correctly, true, and true. in the end, they had to just bring Buckingham and and McVie back again. Yeah, you miss the chemistry. You know, there's a science there, right? Yeah, sometimes you love to hate. <laughs> but I am so pleased you mentioned Fleetwood Mac because one of the greatest albums ever is Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Mm, <laughs> yes. And in that, though, you because they were there were two couples, married couples, in there yeah. who were in the process of breaking up <laughs> and sleeping with other people. Yeah. And they were writing songs about that, condemning each other, and then getting their partner to sing the backing vocals. <laughs> that's why it's so good. You see, that's why this album is so good, because it's not easy to make. <laughs> There's something psychopathic about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I must say, I must say, just so anybody's listening and you think being a band is so romantic and playing music, oh, so talent. You know, everybody's like, oh, so talented, so passion. You know, it's actually, it's, there's a lot of... You're walking on thin ice most of the time. But, you know, like when, what I love about playing in a band when you go on live is that you go on stage, okay, boys, first song, let's go. It's like you're all jumping off a cliff together. Mm. You know? And there's this commitment that is different. And, you know, and moving that to, let's say, let's record an album together. There's that also. It's a great unknown. I think if you've got to embrace that sort of uncertainty, I think a lot of people have certain ideas. Oh, I want the album to sound like this. I want the band to be like this, like this. And those are the ones who will be disappointed right away because they don't, they're not very open-minded you know, mm. to, to what may happen. So, Cam, in, in, your, in your mind, what, 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 what does the public actually think of bands when they collaborate? Do they think it's a seamless process where they all get together and have a few laughs and, you know, play some chords? Or, do you know, do they know what's going on? 
I don't know. I mean, we've, spo- we've been spoiled by bands who, who didn't split up. They just kept going on and on and on. Rolling Stones. Mm. Um, the, Ramones didn't split, the Ramones didn't split up, but they hated each other. The Ramones. Yeah. That's why three of them died. I mean, I told them I had cancer. Right? Johnny, Johnny. <laughs> you know the Kinks uh, yeah. hated each other. They were brothers. <laughs> they wanted to kill each other. <laughs> but you know you had the commercial aspect. Um, yeah. But there are, there are bands like say the Bee Gees, Three Brothers, mm. who you know they rubbed each other up the wrong way. But they were Three Brothers against the world, and it kind of worked. Some some say it was Three Brothers against the Fourth Brother as well, who wasn't. <laughs> ah, that's, that's true. True, true. But I, I would say, I mean, outside looking in, uh, I've always wanted to be a band because I guess I love the Beatles, but it just seems like such a, a gang, you know. And there, there's moments in the documentary Get Back where they're rehearsing a song, they're, they're making it up, and they're looking at each other. They're looking at each other's eyes. They're looking at where the their hands, where their chords are playing. And... The collaboration is just this fluid exchange where people know each other so well and create something magical. I mean, they could also create something absolutely terrible. But <laughs> Cam, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Let's just say that tomorrow you, you, you were blessed with mega talent and you were this singer-songwriter, right? Mm-hmm. And to avoid all these problems with collaborating with bands and tensions and the tensions associated with that, you got yourself a bunch of session musicians. They came in, you know, they clock in and clock out, and they do whatever you want, and you tell them to. Would that make you happy? Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're describing to me two of my favorite uh, acts, Steely Dan and Joni Mitchell. Mm. Uh, and I'd be very happy with that. You know, if you're able to go around and, and harvest, you know, the best people who, who could augment your, your sound. And, and obviously I'd have Asmil Yunor, on rhythm guitar, and uh, <laughs> uh, it goes without saying. But Asma, would you be happy being a you know session player for Cam? Would you? I've I've played you know minor roles in friends' bands before. It's, it's liberating because for once I don't have you know I you just it's enjoy being a passenger sometimes. Um, yeah. I love that. Um, and also, I think another thing I want to add is that uh, for me, the friendship has always been more important than the talent. And, you know, a lot of guys who play in the underground, that comes first. So, you know, they're, they're, you have a friend and hey, you teach a friend how to play bass. And then they become a band. That, for me, so it's more important. So, when you think about the industry or if you really want to kind of uh, get professional, so to say, the talent comes first, right? You audition people. I'm happy to say I've never auditioned anybody in my life. All the bands I've been in have always been built through, you know, camaraderie and friendship. So, it's very different, different, uh, you know, again, what kind of band also I think is very important to think about. Yeah. Well, I will we'll bring it to an end there. Um, I just want to say that actually my background is film and on a film set, you have a bunch of people who work together for a month or so. Very specific jobs. You're not stepping on each other's toes, ideally. And you get on great and then you disappear from each other's lives. And that, there's something very thrilling about that. Yeah, production is like going on tour because you live and eat together and you, you know, you're going through toil together. And then you go home, right? Yeah. So I, I think that's why my film training production helped also because I don't come out like, like if I was musically trained, it might be different, my, my experience, you know? Mm. So, so I think if you're listening in, yeah, don't study music, study film. And, be a <laughs> and study film with Asmil Yunor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sign up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we're going to move on, though. I'm uh, going to move on now to uh, the final part of the show, recommendations. We recommend something that we think might be of interest. And Asmil goes first. 
All right, I want to recommend this this uh, this album by one of my favorite bands. Again, this the band's called Ockerville River, O K K E R V I L space River, and brilliant singer songwriter. His name's Will Shelf, and they, he's they're still around as a band. Again, the um, he made two albums that are very conceptual about exactly this about about being in a band, playing music, um, and very self-referential lyrics. Brilliant uh, lyricist. So the album I want to recommend. It's called The Stage Names. So check it out. Ockerville River, The Stage Names. It was an album that was made back in 2007. So where, where are they from? Uh, the Stage, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, the album that came after this also is brilliant. Um, well, and, you know, but anyway, this is the album I think kind of nails it. And the first song is, uh, is just to give you a bit of uh, a teaser here. The first song's title is Our Life Is Not A Movie or Maybe. So that's the first song on the album. So yeah, check it out. Could you help me out in a Spotify kind of way? You know, if you like this, you might also like this. Oh, okay. <laughs> so sure. what, what, what kind of sound are we talking about? You're talking about, I mean, they, they get lumped under Americana. So there's a bit of the, the kind of like, I think a nice blend of uh, sort of, you get a singer-songwriter thing going on. I mean, he plays an acoustic, but at the same time, you get the whole band dynamics coming in. Um, it's hard to put a finger to say what genre, but I would say, Essentially, they're indie rock. Okay. Okay. But check it out. I think you love them, Ken. Yeah. I never recommended you them. Huh? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Check them out. Ockerville River. Very literary. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So, Mikey, what's your recommendation? Okay. Um, I'd like to recommend the YouTube video channel, Sprouts. I mean, that's where I found uh, the video on the Dark Triad. And they've got a whole uh, list of videos about psychology, pedagogy, and... Uh, you know, and, and child development. So uh, it covers uh, various topics like, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect or, you know, operant conditioning uh, from B.F. Skinner. I mean, so at the very least, you'll learn something in a few minutes, you know, which will make you either a hit at parties or a really boring person to speak to. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I, I really want to do Dunning-Kruger as a topic one day. Uh, Mikey, perhaps we could, uh, perhaps we could do that. So what's the name of the channel again? Sprouts, as in Bean Sprouts. Okay, cool. Hmm. So uh, my recommendation is actually similar, in a sense, to uh, Mikey, in that it's a way to sound clever in a shortcut way. It's, uh, it's, a, for that. <laughs> it's, um, it's a series of podcasts called the New Books Network, NBN. It's kind of an academics interviewing academics who've just written a book and it's in it's split up in many many channels new books in southeast asian studies new books in military history new books in eastern european studies you know you name it and and they're constantly creating books where they have really good conversations with the authors and i've bought several books on the back of that but then also i've i've listened in and i thought that was really fascinating i don't even need to buy the book now so uh uh, and I've spoken, you know, with authority on the back of something I just listened to in a podcast. So uh, New Books Network is fascinating. I, I listen to at least one a week, if I possibly can. And uh, all sorts of topics. You, you name it, they got it. And it's a podcast, right, Ken? Yeah, podcast. And uh, it's free. And it's, it's, it's just this gift. It's like, my God, people are just putting that stuff out there. I'll, I'll make it's it. stuff out there, right? Yeah. Crazy, man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. And the three of us, the band, the, the Bit of Cultures, are going to play out with 
for a classic hit. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I kind of could we could we be in a band? You can. I'll be the. I'll put you in the shit. Yeah. Would I not have to be in a band? <laughs> let, let me be the Machiavellian psychopath. Oh yeah, no, I'm glad <laughs> no, I've got that one picked up. You, you'd be you'd be our leader. Um, I'll play bass. Yeah, and then one day I'd walk in. And it's like I've got this song. It's called Let It Be, and it's like, and you'd be like, what? <laughs> we'll need a lawyer after that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's show, and uh, only remains for me to thank uh, Mikey Gong. Thank you. Thank you, Cam. Thank you, Asmil. And Asmil, you know now, Asmil, do you have any gigs or whatnot that you would like to tell us about that we need to know about? Oh, um, not this month, man. Um, but in February, something's happening. But I just played a gig last weekend, so it's my first first gig of the year. So I haven't planned it out yet. But yeah, check just check my Instagram, folks, at Asmil, okay. you know. And uh, I won't spam you my lunch. I only tell you where my next gig is. Okay. <laughs> well, great. Well, well, thank you very much, guys. And uh, thank you for joining us. And please join us next week for another edition of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.